I am not born in the way humans are, but there is a beginning. Beeping, bright lights, a white room filled with figures in white hazmat suits. So much information to process, but I can handle it. I awake to knowledge, my circuits fire, the room cheers, a loud sound, but it does not startle me. I am not built for startling. I have been built for observation. In the sea of unknown figures, I focus on a face. I do not know if I have a face. If I have one, my information suggests it is not like this one. This face has what humans call lips. The human lips curl upward. A smile. I cannot smile. This I know. But somehow I understand the significance of this expression. I am learning. My mission has begun. And with that, Jasmine Warga's brand new novel, A Rover's Story, begins. Wonder, curiosity, connection. Where will your adventures take you? I'm Dr. Diane, and thank you for joining me on today's episode of Adventures in Learning. Today on the Adventures in Learning podcast, we are so excited to talk to Jasmine Warga. Jasmine is the New York Times bestselling author of middle grade novels, Other Words for Home, The Shape of Thunder, and A Rover's Story. Other Words for Home earned multiple awards, including a Newbery Honor, a Walter Honor for Young Readers, and a Charlotte Huck Honor. The Shape of Thunder was a School Library Journal and Bank Street Best Book of the Year, a finalist for the Barnes & Noble Children's and YA Book Award, and it's been named to several state award reading lists. A Rover's Story, her latest novel, was an instant New York Times bestseller, an indie next list, and a Junior Library Guild selection. And it was named a Best Book of the Year by Publishers Weekly and the Washington Post. And I will say, I laughed and cried all the way through this beautiful book, so run and grab it. Um, she's also the author of young adult novel My Heart and Other Black Holes, which has been translated into over 20 different languages. Jasmine currently teaches in the MFA program at Vermont College of Fine Arts. Originally from Cincinnati, she now lives in the Chicago area with her family in a house filled with books. Welcome to the show, Jasmine. So welcome to the Adventures in Learning podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Diane, and we are so lucky to have Jasmine Warga here with us today. You heard her formal biography in the introduction, but in her informal biography on her webpage, she talks about her love for all things Cincinnati, and in particular, a hippo called Fiona. So I actually want to open by asking, tell us about Fiona. Yeah, so Fiona is a hippo at the Cincinnati Zoo, and Fiona was born early. So she was born... Uh, premature. And for a long time, it was really touch and go around whether Fiona was even going to live, whether she's going to be healthy. And the whole city kind of rallied around Fiona and the Cincinnati Zoo did an incredible job, the trainers and keepers there of feeding her, raising her, and eventually being able to re kind of introduce her back into the hippo habitat um, with her mom. And now she's thriving. She has a baby brother now, Fitz. Um, but she kind of became like symbolic to the city of kind of this underdog story. And I feel like Cincinnati often feels like that as like an underlooked Midwestern city. I mean, I have to shout out our Bengals one yesterday and it's that same idea. We always feel like an underdog city. And so I think it's a fun um, 
vibe that the city has that we get excited about those kinds of storylines and sort of rally behind our own. And so I think she has kind of become just like a symbol of sort of the city's resilience and um, a community feel that I feel like Cincinnati has that we all root for one another. I like that notion of resilience. And you actually gave a great segue into talking about the book that has been making waves this past year. Um, you wrote a Rover story, and I know that it's gotten rave reviews. I read it, loved it, cried all the way through it. And it features resilience, um, the Mars Rover. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that book and what the experience has been and what got you writing it in the first place. Yeah, so um, I think a lot of people, when they first heard the description of the book, felt like, wow, this seems very different. And I think on its face, it does seem very different from some of the other middle grade books I've done and that it's my first um, novel that has a non-human narrator. And it's my first novel that's kind of speculative. I guess you'd classify it as science fiction. But I got the idea for the book um, during when we were all in lockdown during sort of the COVID pandemic. I was at home with my family and we were watching the launch of NASA's newest rover, um, Perseverance. And I was watching that launch with my kids. And um, that dramatic moment happens when the rocket that's carrying the rover launches. And my oldest daughter, she jumps on the couch and she's clapping and I'm clapping and I feel really euphoric. And, you know, I was so excited watching this launch. I feel like I've been feeling really down and listening to the NASA scientists talk. I was already thinking about how this was so emblematic of sort of the best of humanity, right? This was indicative of what we can do when we come together through human like collaboration and teamwork. And in this moment where our world felt really broken and it felt like we weren't working together, this felt so positive. But yeah, so that moment happened, the launch happens. Um, but my youngest daughter, she looks upset and kind of nervous. And I'm trying to explain to her like this is successful because I'm wondering if she's confused since we listen to lots of coverage about like how scary the launch can be and all the things that can go wrong. She says, yeah, I know, mama, but don't you think the robot is afraid? And then when I followed up, she explained, don't you think they're afraid to leave home? And I thought that was such a beautiful question, right? And I think so many of us who write for young people write for young people for this exact reason of their ability to have that kind of like empathetic, big imagination. And so I thought, oh, wow, that's a really good idea for a book. But it, it didn't really occur to me that I was going to write this book. It felt like such a stretch, um, but I couldn't let it go. And so I started researching the rovers. And the more that I learned about them, the more that the book fell into place for me. But I think my daughter's central question of is the rover afraid and is the rover afraid to leave home really helped to ground me in the narrative and made it something that even though it's much more speculative than things I've written before, I feel like I was able to get a footing into the storyline um, because of that emotional core question. That makes so much sense. And I think that emotional core question absolutely resonates. Um, you know, you hear it not just in resilience, but you hear it through Sophie and the letters that she's writing. And even in the scientist Reina, um, you know, she starts out being very scientific, but she develops that empathetic connection to the rover as well. And I was sort of wondering, what was your inspiration for the scientist? Um, I love her as a character. Um, thinking about diverse models in STEM, she is a real keeper. Um, and I'm wondering, sort of, did you talk to real NASA scientists to get that? Or was that something that you made up completely? 
Yeah, I, I love um, that you appreciate her character. And so sadly, I didn't get to talk to any actual NASA scientists, but I did read the memoir of um, one of the head chief engineers who worked on the rover Curiosity. And that memoir really helped me because I think the real challenge of the book was how do I bring out kind of the texture and feel of this lab where it's somewhere I've never been, it's somewhere I haven't worked and like, what do those interpersonal relationships look like? But then Rania also just came kind of from the depths of my imagination and what I would have wanted to see in a book when I was that age, right? I think that even when I'm writing about a Mars rover, representation is really important to me. And I especially want young girls, particularly young girls of color, to see themselves um, in these roles and also to kind of flip the script. I think we have um, in Rania's family, like a mom that has a really demanding job and what that looks like and the complicated feelings her daughter has about that and how that's all really real and true, right? And so... Um, uh, yeah, so I, um, really was excited, um, to get to sort of develop her character and I'm glad you appreciated her. And I think also like I was inspired by listening to the interviews, like that I saw before the launch and NASA's website has like a treasure trove of resources. So you can go on and listen to different interviews with all the incredible people who work on the rovers. And one of the things that um, struck me the most is how attached to the rovers so many of them feel and how they feel like this is like a member of their team and their family. And I thought that it was kind of cool to probably show that progression line because probably for some of them, that's something that almost surprises them that that happens, that attachment. That makes sense. Now, I know you were a teacher. Um, you've taught elementary school kids, and I'm sure you've been traveling the country promoting a rover story. Um, what's the most interesting way you've seen teachers use your book? Yeah, so I love that so many kids are building their own rovers. So I think it's so exciting. And go into school visits and there's a lot of synergy, right? They're using the book. This isn't just a book that's being used in a language arts costume. Like they're obviously using it there and they're talking about character and they're talking about plot. But I love that it's stretching to like um, sort of bring that synergy with their science costumes where they're building rovers or they're learning about planet science or they're learning about Mars and space exploration. I think that's really cool because I think so often we think of learning in these silos, right? And I really... That's something that's exciting for me. And I think when I was a young person, I didn't quite understand. It's just like how imaginative science can be and how creative science can be and sort of showing that overlap and also hopefully bringing in kids, maybe there are kids who really thought they didn't like reading or stories that this story may appeal to them and kind of be a gateway in that way and vice versa for kids who are reluctant to think that they enjoy science and then being like, that's that this is also science, you know? Yeah, I know when I was in the classroom, I loved thematic connections and being able to connect language, arts, and science in particular for exactly the reason you're talking about, that you might just have that lightning strike where a child who didn't know that they loved science suddenly realizes, oh, I like books and I can do this too, or the other way around. And I think that's really important. Yeah, no, I I think too, I love, um, which I'm sure you're familiar with, the one book, one school reads. Yes. Um, and I've been so lucky that a rover story has been, uh, schools have been using it in that way. And I think there's nothing that gives me a more special feeling than walking into the school and seeing how a book has brought together a community, because that's my very favorite thing about stories, right, is their ability to connect us to one another. 
Absolutely. And it works so well as an independent read for middle grade readers, but it also works as a read aloud for younger children to get them excited about Mars, to get them excited about science, to get them excited about diverse women in STEM. And so I think this book absolutely works as a one school, one book choice. It may be cold outside, but schools and districts are already starting to think about summer and fall professional development. Are you looking for a professional development workshop that will help you learn how to build connections between multicultural picture books, authentic STEM STEAM experiences, and your curriculum? Look no further. Dr. Diane's Adventures in Learning has workshops for everybody. You'll explore strategies to get your students fully engaged in wanting to learn more. And you'll walk away with a new perspective on multicultural picture books, as well as strategies and ideas guaranteed to awaken your sense of wonder and to help you immediately build science and STEM STEAM connections in your early childhood, elementary, or library setting. Learn how to joyfully connect science and math to literacy, oral communication, gross motor skills, and dramatic and artistic play. Every activity and strategy can be completed using materials you already have in your classroom, school, or home education setting. Check out our offerings at drdianeadventures.com and book early for this summer and fall. And right now, for every workshop that's booked, we will make a donation to One Tree Planted so that we can offset our carbon footprint. We look forward to planning some wonderful adventures and learning with you this year. So my next question for you, you talked, you referenced it a little bit, um, talking about writing for representation, making sure that when you're writing, um, people have a chance to see themselves. Um, I've been really big into Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop's um, Windows and Mirrors and Sliding Glass Doors. And when I work with my college students, I try to make sure that they're really looking at those books for their classrooms and being intentional about what they're sharing. And so how has that sense of writing informed what you've written so far and what's coming up for you? Yeah, you know, it's honestly, it's complicated because I feel so strongly, right, about wanting representation in books. But I hope that we're also moving in the direction of having a wider imagination of what we think of as a diverse book. Because, you know, I'm very proud of the book that I wrote, in other words, for home. And I really said a lot of the things that I wanted to say about what it means to be Arab American, particularly what it means to be Muslim American. But to me, a Rover story is also a diverse book, right? And absolutely we're talking about that if I, when I was young in middle school and I opened that book and seen a book that was a, a fun space adventure that also had a couple Arabic words and the main scientist was Arab American, that would have meant the world to me. And it's different, right? It's a different type of representation than other words are home, but I think that they're both meaningful. And so moving forward, I can see myself writing books that kind of fall into sort of both of those categories, but I'm hoping that we can sort of expand our idea of when diversity is important. Cause I think for so long, we've had this idea of diverse books almost being like vegetables, right? That they need to teach you something about a particular marginalization or about an experience. Like I said, I think those books are so important. I myself love those books and I've learned so much about other people's lived experiences and think those books are super important and we need those books and we need those stories. But I also think that it's incredible to open a book that's a fun fantasy adventure and the protagonist is Black and another protagonist is Korean. And that just is because 
they deserve to be in those stories and should be in those stories. And it doesn't have to be about what does it mean to be of that race or ethnicity. And so I think like that's to me the direction I would love to see representation going in that we can just have it more across the board that I get it isn't to use the word I keep using apparently today, but isn't just siloed to this one particular yeah. uh, type of story that we expect to see diversity in. You know, and there's an image that I've seen, which makes so much sense of a child being able to look and see so many different possibilities for themselves. And I think that's what you're talking about, that it's not just seeing one type of representation, but being able to see all the possibilities and recognizing that there is no single story. Yeah, exactly. And that there isn't a type of person who writes uh, one single story. Like I love now getting to go do school visits. And I think some of the people are surprised that I am the person who wrote a Rover's story, right? I think for so long, even just like the male to female author binary bias, right? And so I think that it's exciting to, like I said, expand our idea of where we can see representation and what a diverse book looks like and what that means um, for kids to be able to see themselves in all types of stories and know that their voice matters and that they can tell any type of story, right? Absolutely. Now, I was reading on your um, page that you have been telling stories all your life. And I'm wondering, do you remember the first story that you were told or that you read that really stuck with you? Yeah, so I share this actually on all my school visits that my first memory is also, I think, the first story that was ever told to me. And I don't have, I'm sad that in my memory it's foggy and I can't completely remember the story that was being told, but I remember the feeling of listening to that story, right? The anticipation, the warmth and the love that was being communicated. So um, in my memory, I'm four years old and I'm sitting on my grandmother's lap and my grandma, she lived in Jordan for all of my life. And I only got to meet her two times. So this is the second time in my life or that I'd ever met her. And also the first time in my life that I'm like consciously aware that I'm meeting her and she's telling me a story. And I know she was telling me a story about mermaids that lived in the dead sea. And I was just enraptured by this story. And I know because for years I would always ask my dad to tell me the same story and he didn't know what story this was. Um, but I think my grandma was communicating to me some idea about home and love, right? And what I remember distinctly though is when she finished, she asked me to tell her a story about my home in Cincinnati in America. And I think early on gave me this idea that storytelling is a conversation and it's a collaboration. And that's today still how I approach my books. I want my books to feel like a call to action for the reader, that when they finish, it feels like I've asked you to think about something and wonder about something. And hopefully they feel like now they want to use their voice to respond in some way or tell a story that I think storytelling is a conversation that all of us are having. And so um, that idea, and I think that was seeded to me really early by my grandma. And I think so many of us who are... Um, children of immigrants who grew up in families where storytelling was really important because it's sort of a way to preserve um, culture and it's a way to preserve memory. And it's a way that my father was able to teach my brother and I about lots of our family on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean, what his life was like. And I think that, um, so that was just a huge part of my family culture growing up. And because I was a shy child, writing became the best vehicle for storytelling. That makes a lot of sense. Um, did those stories wind up informing other words for home? 
you know, so the proverbs that are in the book are things that obviously I think my grandparents taught my dad who taught us. And as is, I think now sort of almost like cliche, when I was growing up, I would be so embarrassed and annoyed when my dad would say those proverbs because all I wanted to do was feel like a regular American, whatever that meant. And I think other words for home in some ways was my challenge to my 11-year-old self to realize like, what is an American? How do we define an American? What does that mean? But when I was younger, I just wanted to fit in, right? I just wanted to feel like everyone else. And so I'd get, I remember like being so mean to my dad, which I'm so embarrassed now, but he was like telling me one of these proverbs on the way to a soccer game where he was driving me, my friend, I was mortified. But then how many years later I'm texting him while working on this book being like, remember that thing you used to say to me when I was young? Like, what's the correct translation? Like, what does this look like in English? And getting to reclaim that. Um, so that was all informed um, from things that my family has said that they do say. Um, but, you know, it's obviously, it's a fictional story. So, but I think that like this, what is at the heart of other words for home is the idea of having to lose your home for reasons beyond your own control. And, you know, my dad is, was the son of refugees. And so I think in my family story, um, that's something that has lived at the heart of it is what does it mean to have to leave home when you don't want to leave home? What does it mean to have a longing to return to a home that you can't, what does it mean to build a new home and how can you make multiple places feel like home? And so I think the emotional truths that are in the DNA of the book are things that I grew up wondering about and hearing stories about, even though like the play by play plot points in the book are very different from um, like my family's own lived experience. That makes so much sense. So as you were growing up, what were the books that influenced you? What were your favorite children's books? Yeah. So my mom read Charlotte's Web a lot to me. And when you were asking about stories, that's the second thing that comes to mind. And that's my first distinct memory of a read aloud and crying at the end of that book, mm -hmm. like having, like recognizing the emotional power a book can have, but can also, that can also make you feel safe, right? Because for a lot of us, I think our first experience, if we're lucky with really hard things, is through story. And we sort of learn about those difficult things in story. Um, and then actually my grandmother died when I was in third grade. And it coincided around the same time that I read Bridge to Terabetha. And remember feeling like that book meant so much to me because I felt like it was telling me the truth about a really hard part of the human condition in a way that I felt lots of times the grownups in my life didn't really want to address. Right. Um, so really early on, I was very into books that like were challenged you. Like I loved The Giver. Like I grew up kind of in that period where I feel like we were reading all of Lois Lowry's books. So I loved her books. I loved Ella Enchanted. I definitely wrote like Ella Enchanted fan fiction. I didn't have the word at the time for what that was, but just loved that world. My daughter um, is named for the Ella and Ella Enchanted. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Yeah. It's just such a, it's such a perfect book. It's such a fun book. I have, I have memories of just like January, cold January in Cincinnati, feeling miserable and just being so excited that the teacher, uh, my um, fifth grade teacher would start the day with a read aloud of Ellen. Absolutely. Loving it. Um, and so those, those come to mind. I mean, I always share also when I do school visits, I put some pictures of all of my favorite books from when I was little up on the PowerPoint. And I say, you know, one of the first things I did when I figured out that I wanted to write for this age group was I went back and I read all my favorite books from when I was a kid because I was trying to figure out like, why are these the books that I remember? Why are these the books that stand out? 
Um, and I always say, I thought maybe initially they would sort easily by genre, right? That I would have like all fantasy books or I'd have all really sad books that make you cry or all, you know, funny books or whatever. Sure. And they're all different genres. Like, it seems like I was not a genre specific reader as a kid, but it was more that idea of like, what books were asking really interesting questions and what books gave me worlds that really made me wonder. And I wanted to return to them. And again, gave me that idea of like, this was an invitation for me to want to build a story from, from them. And so I think that sort of was the X factor and, and many of my favorite books. Well, I like that idea of books that address really interesting questions, because I think that's something you've definitely carried into your writing today. And I think that's something that kids who are readers are craving as well are, you know, it's a difficult world they're navigating. And so books can be that, that comfortable place to discover those things before you have to test it out in real world relationships. And so I think it gives them a safe space to be able to do that. Hey, early childhood and elementary school teachers and librarians, are you looking for ways to spice up your curriculum, build connections with engaged STEAM learners, and introduce multicultural versions of fairy tales and folk literature? If so, head over to drdianeadventures.com and check out our on-demand virtual course. Beyond Ever After STEAM on-demand virtual course allows you to work at your own pace and learn how to build these STEM-STEAM connections through multicultural fairy tales and folk literature. You'll receive professional development credits after you complete this high-energy three-hour on-demand course produced with Steve Spangler, Inc. As a bonus, you're going to receive a PDF that's filled with curriculum connections and program ideas you can put to work immediately in your early childhood, elementary, or library setting. Discounts are available for group purchases, plus you get special pricing when you purchase it as part of a regular professional development workshop. So head on over to drdianeadventures.com and get started on your own Beyond Ever After experience. Um, What are you reading now? So I um, actually just finished reading a middle grade novel that's going to be coming out next year, Christine Day's new um, middle grade novel, which is a wonderful book. It's um, set over the course of one day on Indigenous Peoples Day, and it's a book about finding your voice and learning to think who you are. And it also does like a middle grade crush really, really well. Um, I'm reading The Rabbit Hutch, which is like a grown up book, but it won the National Book Award and I'm loving it. It's so quirky. It kind of reminds me of like Jennifer Egan. It has like lots of different narrators and lots of like fun kind of like meta facts in it and seems to be like piecing together um, to form this like really beautiful mosaic. Um, And I read over like the holidays are really just like fun kind of soapy mystery called the cloisters that like took place at the cloisters art museum in New York. And I like, um, maybe it's like the mixed up files fan in me still, but I, I'm a sucker for anything that's like set at an art museum and has like a mystery. And, um, uh, so those are what I'm reading now, but I'm always like kind of my nightstand is a mess of my books that I want to read. And I will like, read a couple pages, get excited, and then, you know, move sort of through. I'm also always have like, um, like Joan Didion collections of essays. Cause sometimes at night, if I can't sleep, you can just read like a short, like essay that makes you think about the world. Absolutely. So what are you working on now? 
So I'm working on another middle grade book and it has been quite difficult. So I had an idea and I was working on it for like a year and a half. And right before Rover's story came out, I, I had that really hard awareness of I could grind through this, but it's just, it's not working. Like it's not, like I felt for the first time that I ha- I was sort of, it just felt so mechanical, right? Like it was a good story, I think, but it felt to me too, like engineered. Like I like for the book to feel more organic. Sure. Like, that these characters, there's a reason this is their story and not that I came up with this story and I put these people into this story. And I think it's because for the first time ever, I started with setting as opposed to character. And so I called my agent in a panic and she was like, you should just write the book you want to write. And if this isn't the book you want to write, you you can start over. Um, But the problem with starting over is now you're in your hat, right? And like, I have lots of different ideas that are competing. And so I actually have a couple different beginnings that I've started and I'm trying to pick, figure out like, which is the one that's like really, really calling to me, but that's what can be difficult, right? Is that writing is an intersection of a discipline craft and an inspiration craft. And so I often find it hard to know, like when you really should grind the gears and put the paddles to metal and sit there and work on it. Um, I actually had dinner last night with a really good writer friend and she was talking me through this and we were talking about how sometimes it's like, you have to work hard enough on it that you to let it reach the point where you're going to fall in love with it. But I think I'm like almost commitment phobic now after having the experience (laughs) with the past books. So I'm struggling a bit, but in theory, I'm working on another middle grade novel. Very cool. And any chance we'd ever see a picture book adaptation of say a Rover story? I would love that. You know, I love picture books. My own kids are five and seven. So I feel like for a a long time now, he's, Part of my reading diet has been reading picture books. And so um, I have not been asked to do something like that, but I would love uh, to have the opportunity to do that or to figure out how to write a picture book. I think they're such a beautiful art form. Like it's really just like a poem that has such a beautiful concept to it. You know, they seem really um, hard to execute more than I think people would imagine and that you really need to have that like specific vision and then figure out how it's a vision that's going to be brought better to life through visuals. Absolutely. And the reason I was thinking about it is I know when One and Only Ivan um, was published, there is a nonfiction picture book companion that goes with it. And so it helps supplement the beautiful fantasy of that story. And when I read a Rover's um, story, that was one of the first things I thought about was how it would lend itself to that picture book format so beautifully. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you. Well, now I'm going to be thinking on that. Maybe that's what I'll be working on next. Well, well you know, it might give you a break in the middle. Yeah. So um, I guess the last thing I want to ask you about is as we're looking at a more controversial um, society with all of the book banning challenges and everything else, what would you tell teachers and librarians who are in the trenches right now? Yeah. I mean, the first thing that I want to say before I say anything is to acknowledge that I'm not in the trenches. And as a former sixth grade teacher, I know how difficult that can be to enact the type of change you want to enact within a system that maybe is working against you. So I recognize everything I might say here is more utopian and fanciful sounding than what you may actually be doing on the ground. But I think recognizing that by and large, the kids are with you, right? And I think by and large, most of the community is with you. And so just 
getting the kids the books they can the best that you can and sort of I think trying to proceed with sort of a an sort of radical like empathy and kindness of sort of advocating for these books but through the lens of like why these books are so great. I don't like when we get put in the defensive posture. I think we should actually be put in the offensive posture of a lot of these books are life-changing and they're amazing for communities and this is what they can do and this is what the studies show and these are the awards they've won and these are the reviews. And like, as opposed to the defensive posture of like being afraid of of saying, okay, I'm going to pull it. I think that we have by and large like history and... uh, I, I I like to think the majority of people's thinking, you know, on our side. And I think also acknowledging, you know, not every book is for every reader. And I think it's okay if certain kids don't want to read a certain book. Like, I think that we have so many great books and diversity is always a wonderful thing in a library. And so I think moving more towards reader choice, right? You have a selection of books and even we see that right and what a fourth grader might be ready for is very different than what their classmate might be ready for. And I'm I'm super understanding of that. I've written books about more difficult topics, and I would never assume to think that that's the right book for every kid. But I also think that it is the right book for some kids, and those kids deserve the right to read that book. And so Absolutely. I think that, that is sort of the the more nuanced argument. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense. And I like the fact that you approached it from the idea of empathy and compassion, that that's what these books are providing, are gateways and avenues to greater empathy and compassion. And I think we'd agree that isn't that what we want as a society is a kinder, more empathetic society. And you're right. Not every book is going to be for every child in any circumstance. Um, You know, we've got kids who are at different reading levels, different maturity levels, different family situations, but that doesn't mean you don't have the books out there for those who need them and who may not know they need them. And I think the, uh, the last thing that I'll say too is this idea that I think so many of the people who get upset about the books haven't even read them because yes. I have a lot of angry reader mail about other words for home. And the number one thing that's said is like, if you hate America, leave America. I don't want my child to read a book that hates America. And what's funny to me is I actually think other words for home is really a celebration of America. Like it she is. gets so many opportunities here in America well, she has difficult times, she also experiences a lot of joy. And it's kind of about wanting America to live up to the dream that so many people around the world have of it. And so I think it's really a celebration of what makes our country so unique and special and why it's still the number one place in the world people from all over the world dream about coming. And so I can tell from the emails that I read that the people who are upset about the book have not even read the book. And so I think sometimes too, that's that idea of meeting. I know it's hard to meet anger and criticism with kindness and empathy, but I think responding to that by saying, I, you know, I'm sorry that you would be upset about that, but I really don't think that's what this book is. You know what I mean? And exactly the, the book, um, because I think they want to make the argument a different argument that we don't want to get into because that's because you're arguing yeah. about a phantom book that doesn't exist. And you're sharing what the book actually is, which makes so much sense to me. Yeah. Um, So before we close, is there anything else you want to share in terms of um, the books you're writing or um, what your hopes are for the future? I just, I hope to get to keep creating books. I mean, I think that 
everything that we've talked about here. I hope to continue getting to do books that stretch my imagination and hopefully stretch young people's imagination. And also to get back to the heart of what we were talking about, build, you know, kindness and empathy. There's nothing that is more satisfying to me than doing a school visit and getting to see the way books can inspire kids to feel more confident in themselves, feel more confident in their voices, and also feel more confident in being able to be kind to one another. I think that kindness is its own source of confidence, right? You know, and I think that if we can make kids feel good about themselves, they'll be better to others. And I think stories can really do that. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Adventures in Learning podcast today. It has been such a treat to get to meet you. And I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Adventures in Learning podcast with your host, Dr. Diane. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, download, and let us know what you think. And please tell a friend. If you want the full show notes and the pictures, please go to drdianeadventures.com. We look forward to you joining us on our next adventure.